Hey, 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 how's your day? Good, okay. In this episode of Dialogical Humanism, we will be examining what is psychological health, the sociocultural history of mental illness, and the risks of SSRI use in adolescent Canadians. Stay tuned till the end. Hi everyone, welcome back to Dialogical Humanism. In part one of episode three, we introduce the prevalence of a culture in Canada which may be breeding mental upset and mental unease in our youth. Donna Lee's beautiful poem was about how many of her friends feel like they need to achieve or become devalued by their friends and family around them. Similarly, Louisa discussed how, in her work as a mental health advocate and perceived high-performing student, she has encountered numerous students who feel ostracized and depressed to the point of self-harm. They don't feel normal. She also spoke from her own experience as a perceived high-performing student about the perils that expectations for our young people have on their mental health. Today, in this discussion with a psychological researcher, I want to continue to explore the category of mental health and to problematize the way that we perceive mental illness as a pathology. The number one cause of youth suicide in Canada is supposedly mental illness. However, what precisely is a mental illness? Today, we want to continue that discussion surrounding specifically how psychological health is conceived of and categorized. To delve into this topic, I have a very special guest with me today. She's one of the most fantastic undergraduate psychological researchers I know, and her undergraduate thesis work was accepted for publication at the British Psychology Association's annual conference. She has done extensive research into the DSM and many, many disorders, specifically borderline personality disorder. Her name is Lucy Sia, and we met when we were both conducting clinical research at the Ward Summer Student Program at Hall and Bloorview Kids Rehabilitation Hospital. Lucy, I want to welcome you so deeply to the show. Thank you for bringing so much love and light to my life, and hopefully together we can shed some light on some really important issues concerning mental health and mental disorders in youth in Canada today. Thanks again for being here. Man, every time, like, you say something like this, I just feel so gassed because it's coming from you. (laughs) (laughs) Bruh, because everyone I got on this podcast deserve gassing, though. Like, y'all got to know, I wouldn't be here if you guys weren't here. I wouldn't, there would be no podcast without your voices. So, thanks, Lucy. Thank you. (laughs) All right, let's, um, let's keep going with our topic here because... I know you and I have some super fun times together, but today we definitely have a really serious topic to discuss. And I think to introduce it, introduce this idea of critically examining what a mental illness is, I want to ask you from your research, um, what exactly is psychological health? Because I think it might be more ambiguous than some people realize. Right. So when I've just been kind of digging around trying to find a definition for this, I noticed that a lot of the times you'll see the word normal appear. So for, just for an, as a quick example, one of the definitions I found said, proper psychological health involves a normal, emotional, behavioral, and social maturity to a person. And so 
this gets me kind of thinking because what exactly is normal, right? Like everybody has a general sense of what it means, Mm -hmm. but once you get down to the nitty gritty of it and like try to exactly pinpoint where normal ends and where abnormal behavior begins, that's when things get really fuzzy. Absolutely. And I think our discussion today will be really interesting because we'll talk about precisely how those boundaries are decided and how their decision directly impacts the lives of Canadian youth. So drawing on your psychology background, Lucy, let's now talk about who decides normal. Could you explain to our viewers today with no psychology background, what is the DSM and why it's so important to clinical psych? Of course. So the DSM stands for the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Illnesses, and it has five editions. So we're currently on the fifth one. Um, Every, like, throughout history, every single edition, it gets revised, like new disorders are added. You get rid of some of them, um, and they also modify the criteria for every um, disorder as well. Hmm. So right now, we have roughly 1,000 pages worth um, that are included in the DSM, and there are about 350 diagnoses available. Wow. It's it's really helpful when you're in a clinical setting to make sense of the concept of mental illness, which is is incredibly complex because there's so much variability, right? Yeah. Um, And especially it's really helpful when you're trying to help people with debilitating or life-threatening cases. But the thing is, it can be problematic because it medicalizes and categorizes almost every imaginable thing that can be wrong with someone. Mm. Um, you know, like the human experience is so, like, it's, it's so vast, right? Absolutely. And it doesn't really allow for the full spectrum of the human experience. There's very little wiggle room for anything that might be out of a very rigid yet very ambiguous definition of what's normal psychological health. Absolutely. And I think what struck me the most about when we initially had this conversation casually and not on a podcast is you brought to light to me how the DSM has changed so much over culture and time. I was wondering if we could discuss that today as well. Yeah, so there's definitely been a lot of criticism out there. And a huge reason is that it's really easy to uh, convert what would otherwise be considered normal human behavior into a mental illness. So one example that really sticks out in my mind is in, uh, is major depressive disorder. So in the fourth edition of the DSM, um, there was something called the bereavement exclusion which basically said that if somebody um, if somebody in your life had died two months ago and you were experiencing all of these depression criteria or symptoms, then you wouldn't officially be diagnosed with depression because they recognize that you're probably grieving and this is just you kind of dealing with your loss. But after the DSM-5 was released... Um, they kind of, they got rid of that and shortened that kind of time frame from two months to two weeks. So, in other words, if after two weeks you are still feeling um, like the symptoms of grief, you would be diagnosed with depression. Um, that takes me into my next question, Lucy, which is who exactly compiles the DSM and why is this so important to Canadian youth? So there are 160 mental health and medical professionals who are in charge of determining 
the criteria for the DSM, um, which is great. Like they've all done a lot of research into their like the topic of mental health. But the thing is, their decisions also heavily rely on cultural definitions of normality, right? Yeah. Um, so they are they don't exist in a vacuum. Like they are also privy to like sociological concepts. So, and the thing is, historically speaking, people involved in the DSM have rarely been a woman or queer or people of color, which ends up, so as a result, this ends up excluding other cultural narratives of mental health, especially those from, for example, collectivist nations, um, which leaves room for a huge cultural bias towards Western individualistic notions of what it means to be a healthy and successful person. Hmm. In addition to that, I would also say what is extremely concerning to me when I hear this coming from you is that women, uh, people of color, people who belong to queer communities, these are all considered populations who are perceived as high risk for these mental disorders. And so these perceived high risk populations are actually fundamentally excluded from defining what precisely a mental disorder is while simultaneously being deemed as high risk. And I think that is definitely problematic and controversial. I was wondering if you could give another example of how political movements have affected the diagnosis of mental disorders. Yeah, of course. So one other example that sticks, that comes to mind is schizophrenia. So when the civil rights movement began in America during the 1960s, there were all these protests happening. And eventually, the criteria around this time shifted to include traits like um, anger and hostility and aggression. And suddenly, you had all these black men who started to be diagnosed. Um, and you can still see that reflected in today's current diagnostic patterns where black men are disproportionately diagnosed with schizophrenia than any other group. Wow. This example of schizophrenia is really poignant to me, Lucy, because I think for me, myself, coming from a physiology background, I always perceived schizophrenia as a strictly neurobiological disorder. And I was wondering if you could give another example of how a neurobiological disorder might have been misdiagnosed in the past? Yeah, um, definitely. So there, uh, okay, so hysteria also comes to my mind. Um, so hysteria was coined a long time ago, like we're talking in the Hippocratic ages, when, um, when all these women started to exhibit a bunch of symptoms, like physical symptoms, such as going blind or convulsions or stuff like that, but no singular physical physical cause could be attributed to it. So Hippocrates coined the term schizophrenia, uh, sorry, (laughs) hysteria, and it basically means wandering womb. So basically women were blamed for, you know, like not like for their womb and like uterus for having these symptoms. And... Wait, what the, what the hell? (laughs) Like... (laughs) You think yeah. that the father of modern day medicine would know that your uterus stays in your body? That's kind of it's <laughs> so ridiculous to me. Yeah, right. And hysteria accounts for like anything, sort like literally any sort of somatic or physical symptom that doesn't um, that can't be attributed to any cause was mm. coined hysteria. So it's like this huge umbrella term. 
And you would think that it sounds really problematic, right? That seems like something that would have been eliminated ages ago. But it was only removed from the DSM in 1980. Wow. Yeah. That's nuts. That's nuts. Women's uterus has been running. (laughs) Like... (laughs) What? I guess we finally stopped in 1980, right? <laughs> they, they caught him. It, it was that whole Pokemon Go wave. They caught them all. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I think on a more serious note, though, I think an important distinction between mental health and physical health that needs to be made, although both are equally important, is that researchers don't know precisely what the cause of many mental disorders are. For example major depressive disorder. Is that something that you would agree with? A hundred percent. Yeah, like the causes of mental illness are so, they're so vast, right? And they vary from person to person. Mm-hmm. And for the, however, for the vast majority of people, it's really hard to know what, if what can be considered a mental illness is just a normal reaction to a difficult situation or environment, whether it can be pointed to like any particular cause such as a breakup or getting bullied but most of the time it's a lot less clear Mm. so there's a lot of environmental influences like for example your childhood upbringing your social circle your family your work situation or even things that might have continuous but less noticeable exposure things like poverty and discrimination that have really cumulative effects on your mental health that aren't always as noticeable. Absolutely. Um, But of course, there is definitely some sort of neurobiological impact as well. So right now, there's a lot of kind of discourse in, um, in comparing neurobiological versus societal causes of mental illness, and the two of them are kind of like battling each other out. But for the most part, people just associate um, neurobiological causes to mental health as a whole. And like, there's just very little discussion on how that might not always be the case. Absolutely. And I think that while the strong, the stronger association between neurobiology and mental health has led to some fantastic strides in medicine and psychiatry, culturally speaking, I, I do agree. And I do think that it is partially very tragic because a lot of people don't realize the complexity of what mental illness or a mental disorder is and are very quick to blame themselves immediately for the way that they're acting or they're feeling. And I think speaking from personal experience, that really debilitates people and it really inhibits them from conceptualizing themselves in more positive ways. To everyone who's listening right now, we're going to take a break. And after this break, we're going to be exploring specifically a case study of major depressive disorder in Canadian youth. And I hope you enjoy the song that I'm about to play in the break. It's composed and produced by a local indie artist named Jeremy Newell. It's about insecurities and the song title is called Trash.
Welcome back to Dialogical Humanism, and thank you so much, Jeremy, for letting me use your absolutely wonderful song in today's podcast. In the second half of today's episode, we will now be discussing a case study on mental health in Canadian youth, specifically centered on discussions of major depressive disorder. The reason why we are specifically going to be talking about depression today is that according to the 2012 Canadian Community Health Survey of Mental Health, 15 to 24 year olds had the highest rates of mood and anxiety disorders of all age groups. About 7% of them were identified as having depression in the past 12 months, compared with 5% of people aged 25 to 64 and 2% of those aged 65 or older. This is an extremely serious public health concern because the lifetime suicide rate of people with major depression is 15% and depression can also be lethal in other ways. Today, with Lucy Sia, I want to be critiquing the way major depressive disorder is being treated in Canadian youth. We are seeing a problematic trend towards an increase in the prescribing of antidepressants to younger children and adolescents. In a new study published in the Journal of Child and Adolescent Psychopharmacology, researchers analyzed data collected over a five-year period. They found that antidepressant prescriptions increased by 36%. The most commonly used antidepressant is called a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor or SSRI. Lucy, what exactly is an SSRI? So it stands for selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. It basically works by increasing the levels of serotonin within the brain. Uh, and serotonin is a neurotransmitter that's often referred as the feel-good hormone. Lucy, on the topic of SSRIs, I want to read you a quotation I found in a Globe and Mail article and kind of get your reaction on it. So, quote, The truth is, depression is not a serotonin deficiency. The idea that depression is caused by low serotonin levels is based on flimsy evidence dating to the 1950s. Pharmaceutical companies promoted the low serotonin story to sell Prozac and related antidepressants. They marketed a myth, unquote. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that really strikes a chord with me because there are actually drugs out there that work in the completely opposite direction, right? Like they, there are drugs that decrease the amount of serotonin and still work in fighting depression. So but I think the important thing to note is that what works for one person doesn't always work for everybody. And different, so many people have to go through several different trial and errors of using different antidepressants before they're even able to find one that works for them. But the point that I really want to emphasize is that I'm not saying antidepressants are bad and they're, um, and they're ineffective. There are so many people out there who really benefit from the use of antidepressants and would be completely non-functional without it. I have a lot of friends who have been helped by it, but my point of concern is that antidepressants seem to be our number one kind of, um, line, of a, line of defense against depression. Absolutely. And we aren't really exploring other uh, other options out there when there are a lot of dangers associated with antidepressants. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I share those concerns, Lucy, because in preparation for this episode, I read a very worrisome study related to the 2004 FDA black box warning on SSRIs that remains controversial to this day, but I definitely think it's worth raising awareness for. Essentially, in 2004, the FDA conducted a meta-analysis of 372 randomized clinical trials of antidepressants, which involved nearly 100,000 patients. These trials showed that the rates of suicidal thinking or behavior was higher amongst patients assigned to antidepressants when compared to placebo. And in an age-stratified analysis, which means that they took a look at the results specific to each age group, they showed that this increased risk was significant only among children and adolescents under the age of 18 years. And further evidence has shown that the fact that antidepressants increases the risk of suicide in people younger than 18 years holds true, even if the evidence is much more shaky for other age groups. And I definitely think that this is something, well, me as a young person, I'm learning about this for the first time, and I hope that anybody listening today does their research into SSRI use as well. Because specifically, Lucy, I really resonate, um, sorry, I really relate to something you said in relationship to how SSRIs are an important first line of defense right now, but we could be doing more to help those in need. I'm going to read you a quotation from yet another article that I will link in the episode's description. Quote, it's conceivable if there are inadequate resources available for people to receive psychotherapy, they may end up receiving pharmacotherapy instead. Generally, in this age range, the preferred first option for treatment of depression is psychotherapy, unquote. And this psychological researcher is referring to the age group as in adolescence. Lucy, as an up-and-coming psych researcher, do you have anything to add to that quote? Definitely. I think a lot of other possible interventions are left out of this conversation because it's so difficult to get access to it. So, for example, therapy... Um, still remains, um, right now, therapy is only accessible if you have a strong insurance background. And if you don't have insurance, it's extremely expensive. Um, and most people don't have the funds to afford it. Mm-hmm. Um, I have heard many stories of friends going thousands of dollars in debt just because they can't, because the prices of therapy are so high. Yeah. Um, But the thing is, therapy has been consistently shown to be just as effective, if not more effective, than depression. Because, And what I really like about therapy is that it takes a very holistic approach where it considers many different factors that might be causing people to feel the way that they do. And in addition to that, it teaches people valuable life skills to cope with uh, the tribulations in life. And it's not just kind of watered down to, oh, your, your brain chemistry is bad. It teaches people how to kind of deal with their emotions and handle future life stressors as well. Absolutely, Lucy. Psychotherapy is well known to be just as, if not more, effective than pharmacotherapy approaches to treating mental disorders in Canadian youth, which it is fantastic that we are definitely seeing a trend towards more psychotherapy funding, specifically mm-hmm. in Ontario. Because now, like, I'm not sure when it'll come into action, but Ford has has said that therapy will be available to anybody diagnosed with anxiety and depression, which I think is great. 
but I don't think it's doing enough. My concern about that is we are leaving out and excluding people who don't necessarily have those diagnoses, mm. right? Mm -hmm. it, so un, until we fully legal, uh, fully publicly fund therapy for the public, regardless of what you have been diagnosed with or haven't been diagnosed with, I, I just don't think it's enough. Absolutely. Lucy, thank you so much again for being on this episode and discussing such difficult topics with me when I know you could be doing something else with your time. So thank you so much. That just leads me into our key takeaways from this two-part episode series. Over here at Dialogical Humanism, we really want to encourage everyone who is listening right now, if you are suffering from mental unease, please do seek help be it through psychotherapy or psychiatry, please do your research on SSRIs and any medication you decide to put in your body. Think critically about how you identify with mental illness as a category. And finally, you are never alone in your dark place. Together, let's challenge what we consider to be normal. Thanks for listening and see you on the next episode of Dialogical Humanism.